0: Chapter 9 of the Enchanted Typewriter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Enchanted Typewriter by John Kendrick Bangs. Chapter 9. Sherlock Holmes again. I had intended asking Boswell what had become of my copy of the Baedeker's Hades when he next returned, but the output of the machine that evening so interested me that the handbook was entirely forgotten if there ever was a hero in this world who could compare with d'artagnan in my estimation for sheer ability in a given line that hero was sherlock holmes with d'artagnan and holmes for my companions i think i could pass the balance of my days in absolute contentment no matter what woeful things might befall me so it was that when i next heard the tapping-keys and dulcet bell of my enchanted typewriter and after listening intently for a moment realized that my friend boswell was making a copy of a sherlock holmes memoir thereon for his next sunday's paper all thought of the interesting little red book of the last meeting flew out of my head i rose quickly from my couch at the first sounding of the gong got a holmes story eh i said walking to his side and gazing eagerly over the spot where his shoulder should have been i have that and it's a winner he replied enthusiastically if you don't believe it read it i'll have it copied in about two minutes i'll do both i said i believe all the sherlock holmes stories i read it is so much pleasanter to believe them true if they weren't true they wouldn't be so wonderful with this i picked up the first page of the manuscript and shortly after boswell presented me with the balance whereon i read the following extraordinary tale a mystery solved a wonderful achievement in ferreting from advanced sheets of memoirs i remember by sherlock holmes esq ferreter extraordinary by special appointment to his majesty Napoleon, who the lady was it was not many days after my solution of the missing diamond of the nizam of zigomarie mystery that i was called upon to take up a case which has baffled at least one person for some ten or eleven centuries the reader will remember the mystery of the missing diamond, the largest known in all history, which the Nizam of Marie brought from India to present to the Queen of England on the occasion of her diamond jubilee. I had been dead three years at the time, but by a special dispensation of His Imperial Highness Apollyon was permitted to return in Cog to London for the jubilee season, where it so happened that I put up at the same lodging-house as that occupied by the Nizam and his suite, we sat opposite each other at table d'hote, and for at least three weeks previous to the losing of his treasure, the Indian prince was very morose, and it was very difficult to get him to speak. I was not supposed to know, nor indeed was any one else for that matter, at the lodging house, that the Nizam was so exalted a personage. He, like myself, was travelling in Cog, and was known to the world as Mr. Wilkins of Calcutta a very wise precaution inasmuch as he had in his possession a gem valued at a million and a half of dollars i recognized him at once however by his unlikeness to a woodcut that had been appearing in the american sunday newspapers labelled with his name as well as by the extraordinary lantern which he had on his bicycle a lantern which to the uneducated eye was no more than an ordinary lamp but which to an eye like mine familiar with gems had for its crystal lens nothing more nor less than the famous stone which he had brought for her majesty the queen his imperial sovereign there are few people who can tell diamonds from plate-glass under any circumstances and mr wilkins otherwise the nizam realizing this fact had taken this bold method of secreting his treasure of course the moment i perceived the quality of the man's lamp i knew at once who mr wilkins was and i determined to have a little innocent diversion at his expense "'It has been a fine day, Mr. Wilkins,' said I, one evening over the parterre. "'Yes,' he replied wearily. "'Very. But somehow or other I am depressed to-night.' "'Too bad,' I said lightly. "'But there are others. There's that poor Nizam of Zigamory, for instance. Poor devil! He must be the bluest brown man that ever lived.' Wilkins started nervously as I mentioned the prince by name. "'Why!' "'Why do you think that?' he asked, nervously fingering his butter-knife. "'It's tough luck to have to give away a diamond that's worth three or four times as much as the koh i I said. "'Suppose you owned a stone like that? Would you care to give it away?' "'Not by a damn sight,' cried Wilkins forcibly, and I noticed great tears gathering in his eyes. "'Still, he can't help himself, I suppose,' I said, gazing abruptly at his scarf-pin that is he doesn't know that he can the queen expects it it's been announced and now the poor devil can't get out of it though i'll tell you mr wilkins if i were the nizam of Zigamarie, i'd get out of it in ten seconds i winked at him significantly he looked at me blankly yes sir i added merely to arouse him in just ten seconds ten short beautiful seconds mr puzzlethwaite said the Nizam was the name i was travelling under mr postlethwaite said the Nizam. otherwise wilkins your remarks interest me greatly his face was wreathed with a smile that i had never before seen there i have thought as you do in regard to this poor indian prince but i must confess i don't see how he can get out of giving the queen that diamond have a cigar mr postlethwaite and waiter a- bring us a triple magnum of champagne do you really think, Mr. Posslethwaite, that there is a way out of it? If you would like a ticket to Westminster for the ceremony, there are a half-dozen. He tossed six tickets for seats among the crowned heads across the table to me. His eagerness was almost too painful to witness. Thank you, said I, calmly pocketing the tickets, for they were of rare value at that time. The way out of it is very simple. Indeed, Mr said he, trying to keep cool. "'Er, are you interested in rubies, sir? There are a few which I should be pleased to have you accept.' And with that overcame a handful of precious stones, each worth a fortune. These also I pocketed, as I replied. "'Why, certainly, if I were the Nizam,' said I, "'I'd lose that diamond.' A shade of disappointment came over Mr. Wilkins's face. "'Lose it? How? Where?' he asked with a frown yes lose it anywhere i could as for the place where it should be lost any old place will do as long as it is where he can find it again when he gets back home he might leave it in his other clothes or make that too triple magnum's waiter cried mr wilkins excitedly interrupting me postlethwaite you're a genius and if you ever want a house and lot in calcutta just let me know and they're yours you never saw such a change come over a man in all your life where he had been all gloom before he was now all smiles and jollity and from that time on to his return to india mr wilkins was as happy as a schoolboy at the beginning of vacation the next day the diamond was lost and whoever may have it at this moment the british crown is not in possession of the zygamrie gem but as my friend terence mulvaney says that is another story it is of the mystery immediately following this, concerning which I have set out to write. I was sitting one day in my office on Napoleon Square, opposite the Alexandrian library, smoking an absinthe cigarette, which I had rolled myself from my special mixture, consisting of two parts tobacco, one part hashish, one part of opium, dampened with a liqueur-glass of absinthe, when an excited knock sounded upon my door. "'Come in!' I cried, adopting the usual formula. The door opened, and a beautiful woman stood before me, clad in most regal garments, robust of figure, yet extremely pale. It seemed to me that I had seen her somewhere before, yet for a time I could not place her. "'Mr. Sherlock Holmes!' said she, in deliciously musical tones, which, singular to relate, she emitted in a fashion suggestive of a recitative passage in an opera. "'The same,' said I, bowing with my accustomed courtesy the ferret she sang in staccato tones which were ravishing to my musical soul i laughed that term has been applied to me madame said i chanting my answer as best i could for myself however i prefer to assume the more modest title of detective i can work with or without clues and have never yet been baffled i know who wrote the junius letters and upon occasions have been known to see through a stone wall with my naked eye what can i do for you tell me who i am she cried tragically taking the centre of the room and gesticulating wildly well really madame i replied you didn't send up any card ah she sneered this is what your vaunted prowess amounts to eh huh. do you suppose if i had a card with my name on it i'd have come to you to inquire who i am "'I can read a card as well as you can, Mr. Sherlock Holmes.' "'Then, as I understand it, madame,' I put in, "'you have suddenly forgotten your identity and wish me to—' "'Nothing of the sort. I have forgotten nothing. I never knew for certain who I am. "'I have an impression, but it is based only on hearsay evidence,' she interrupted. "'For a moment I was fairly puzzled. Still, I did not wish to let her know this, so, going behind my screen and taking a capsule full of cocaine to steady my nerves, I gained a moment to think. Returning, I said, "'This really is child's play for me, madame. It won't take more than a week to find out who you are, and possibly, if you have any clues at all to your identity, I may be able to solve this mystery in a day.' "'I have only three, she answered, and taking a piece of swan's down, a lock of golden hair, and a pair of silver tinsel tights from her portmanteau, she handed them over to me. My first impulse was to ask the lady if she remembered the name of the asylum from which she had escaped, but I fortunately refrained from doing so, and she shortly left me, promising to return at the end of the week. For three days I puzzled over the clues. Swansdown, yellow hair, and a pair of silver tinsel tights, while very interesting, no doubt, at times, do not form a very solid basis for a theory establishing the identity of so regal a person as my visitor. My first impression was that she was a vaudeville artist, and that the exhibits she had left me were a part of her make-up. This I was forced to abandon shortly, because no woman with the voice of my visitor would sing in vaudeville. The more ambitious stage was her legitimate field, if not grand opera itself. At this point she returned to my office, and I, of course, reported progress. That is one of the most valuable things I learned while on earth. When you have done nothing, report progress. "'I haven't quite succeeded as yet,' said I, "'but I am getting at it slowly. I do not, however, think it wise to acquaint you with my present notions until they are verified beyond peradventure. It might help me somewhat if you were to tell me who it is you think you are. I could work either forward or backward on that hypothesis, as seemed best, and so arrive at a hypothetical truth, anyhow. "'That's just what I don't want you to do,' said she. "'That information might bias your final judgment. "'If, however, acting on the clues which you have, "'you confirm my impression that I am such and such a person, "'as well as the views which other people have, "'then will my status be well defined, "'and I can institute my suit against my husband for a judicial separation, "'with back alimony, with some assurance of a successful issue.' I was more puzzled than ever. "'Well,' said I, slowly, "'I, of course, can see how a bit of Swansdown and a lock of yellow hair, backed up by a pair of silver tinsel tights, might constitute reasonable evidence in a suit for separation. But wouldn't it um, be more to your purpose if I should use these data as establishing the identity of uh, somebody else?' "'How very dense you are!' she replied impatiently. "'That's precisely what I want you to do.' "'But you told me it was your identity you wished, proven,' I put in irritably. "'Precisely,' said she. "'Then these bits of evidence are yours?' I asked, hesitatingly. "'One does not like to accuse a lady of an undue liking for tinsel.' "'They are all I have left of my husband,' she answered with a sob. "'Hm,' said I, my perplexity increasing.' "'Was the, uh, the gentleman blown up by dynamite?' "'Excuse me, Mr. Holmes,' she retorted, rising and running the scales. "'I think, after all, I have come to the wrong shop. "'Have you Hawkshaw's address, Handy? "'You are too obtuse for a detective.' "'My reputation was at stake,' so I said, significantly. "'Good, good! "'I was merely trying one of my disguises on you, madame, "'and you were completely taken in.' Of course, no one would ever know me for Sherlock Holmes if I manifested such dullness. "'Ah!' she said, her face lighting up. "'You were merely deceiving me by appearing to be obtuse.' "'Of course,' said I. "'I see the whole thing in a nutshell. "'You married an adventurer. "'He told you who he was, but you have never been able to prove it. "'And suddenly you are deserted by him, and on going over his wardrobe, "'you find he has left nothing but these articles.' "'and now you wish to sue him for a separation on the ground of desertion "'and secure alimony, if possible.' "'It was a magnificent guess.' "'That is it precisely,' said the lady. "'Except as to the extent of his leavings. "'In addition to the things you have, he gave my small brother "'a brass bugle and a tin sword.' "'We may need to see them later,' said I. "'At present I will do all I can for you on the evidence in hand.' I have got my eye on a gentleman who wears silver tinsel tights now but i am afraid he is not the man we are after because his hair is black and as far as i have been able to learn from his valet he is utterly unacquainted with swansdown we separated again and i went to the club to think never in my life before had i had so baffling a case as i sat in the cafe sipping a cocaine cobbler "'who should walk in but Hamlet, strangely enough, picking particles of "'swan's-down from his black doublet, which was literally covered with it. "Hello, Sherlock,' he said, drawing up a chair and sitting down beside me. "'What are you up to?' "'Trying to make out where you have been,' I replied. "'I judge from the swan's-down on your doublet that you have been "'escorting Ophelia to the opera in the regulation cloak.' "'You're mistaken for once,' he laughed. "'I've been driving with Lohengrin. "'He's got a pair of swans that can do a mile in 2.10, "'but it makes them molt like the devil.' "'Pair of what?' I cried. "'Swans,' said Hamlet. "'He's an eccentric sort of a duffer, that Lohengrin. "'Afraid of horses, I fancy.' "'And so drive swans instead,' said I incredulously. "'The same,' replied Hamlet. "'Do I look as if he drove Squab?' "'He must be queer,' said I i'd like to meet him he'd make quite an addition to my collection of freaks very well observed hamlet he'll be here to-morrow to take luncheon with me and if you'll come too you'll be most welcome he's collecting freaks too and i haven't a doubt would be pleased to know you we parted and i sauntered homeward cogitating over my strange client and now and then laughing over the idiosyncrasies of hamlet's friend the swan-driver it never occurred to me at the moment however to connect the two in spite of the link of Swansdown. I regarded it merely as a coincidence. The next day, however, on going to the club and meeting Hamlet's strange guest, I was struck by the further coincidence that his hair was of precisely the same shade of yellow as that in my possession. It was of a hue that I had never seen before, except at performances of grand opera, or on the heads of fool detectives in musical burlesques. Here, however, was the real thing growing luxuriantly from the man's head. "'Ho, ho!' thought I to myself. "'Here is a fortunate encounter. "'There may be something in it.' "'And then I tried to lead him on. "'I understand, Mr. Lohengrin,' I said, "'that you have a fine span of swans.' "'Yes,' he said, and I was astonished to note that he, like my client, "'spoke in musical numbers. "'Very. "'They are much finer than horses, in my opinion. "'More peaceful, quite as rabbit, and amphibious.' "'If I go out for a drive and come to a lake, they trot quite as well across its surface as on the highways.' "'How interesting,' said I, and so gentle, the swan. "'Your wife, I presume?' Hamlet kicked my shins under the table. "'I think it will rain tomorrow," morrow he said, giving me a glance which, if it said anything, said shut up. "'I think so, too,' said Lohengrin, a lowering look on his face if it doesn't it will either snow or hail or be clear and he gazed abstractedly out of the window the kick and the man's confusion was sufficient proof i was on the right track at last yet the evidence was unsatisfactory because merely circumstantial my piece of down might have come from an opera cloak and not from a well-broken swan the hair might equally clearly have come from some other head than lohengrin's and other men have had trouble with their wives The circumstantial evidence lying in the coincidences was strong, but not conclusive, so I resolved to pursue the matter, and invite the strange individual to a luncheon with me, at which I proposed to wear the tinsel tights. Seeing them, he might be forced into betraying himself. This I did, and while my impressions were confirmed by his demeanour, no positive evidence grew out of it. "'I'm hungry as a bear.' He said as i entered the club clad in a long heavy ulster reaching from my shoulders to the ground so that the tights were not visible good said i i like a hearty eater and i ordered a luncheon of ten courses before removing my overcoat but not one morsel could the man eat for on the removal of my coat his eye fell upon my silver garments and with a gasp he well-nigh fainted it was clear he recognized them and was afraid and in consequence lost his appetite. But he was game, and tried to laugh it off. "'Silver man, I see,' he said, nervously, smiling. "'No,' said I, taking the lock of golden hair from my pocket and dangling it before him. "'By-metallist!' His jaw dropped in dismay, but recovering himself instantly, he put up a fairly good fight. "'It is strange, Mr. Lohengrin,' said I, "'that in the three years I have been here I've never seen you before.' "'I've been very quiet,' he said. "'Fact is, I've had my reasons, Mr. Holmes, for preferring the life of a hermit. "'A youthful indiscretion, sir, has made me fear to face the world. "'There was nothing wrong about it, save that it was a folly, "'and I have been anxious in these days of newspapers "'to avoid any possible revival of what might, in some eyes, seem scandalous.' I felt sorry for him, but my duty was clear. Here was my man, but how to gain direct proof was still beyond me. No further admissions could be got out of him, and we soon parted. Two days later the lady called, and again I reported progress. "'It needs but one thing, madame, to convince me that I have found your husband,' said I. "'I have found a man who might be connected with Swansdown, from whose luxuriant curls might have come this tow colored lock.' and who might have worn the silver tinsel tights yet it is all might and no certainty i will bring my small brother's bugle and the tin sword said she the sword has certain properties which may induce him to confess my brother tells me that if he simply shakes it at a cat the cat falls dead do so said i and i will try it on him if he recognises the sword and remembers its properties when i attempt to brandish it at him he will be forced to confess though it would be awkward if he's the wrong man and the sword should work on him as it does on the cat the next day i was in possession of the famous toy it was not very long and rather more suggestive of a pancake turner than a sword but it was a terror i tested its qualities on a swarm of gnats in my room and the moment i shook it at them they fluttered to the ground as dead as door-nails i'll have to be careful of this weapon i thought It would be terrible if I should brandish it at a motorman trying to get one of the Gehenna Traction Company's cable cars to stop, and he should drop dead at his post. All was now ready for the demonstration. Fortunately the following Saturday night was club night at the houseboat, and we were all expected to come in costume. For dramatic effect I wore a yellow wig, a helmet, the silver tinsel tights, and a doublet to match, with the brass bugle and the tin sword properly slung about my person. I looked stunning, even if I do say it. And much to my surprise, several people mistook me for the man I was after. Another link in the chain. Even the public unconsciously recognised the value of my deductions. They called me Lohengrin. And, of course, it all happened as I expected. It always does. Lohengrin came into the assembly room five minutes after I did, and was visibly annoyed at my make-up. "'This is a great liberty!' said he, grasping the hilt of his sword, but I answered by blowing the bugle at him, at which he turned livid and fell back. He had recognised its soft cadence. I then hauled the sword from my belt, shook it at a fly on the wall, which immediately died, and made as if to do the same at Lohengrin, whereupon he cried for mercy and fell upon his knees. "'Turn that infernal thing the other way!' he shrieked. "'Ah!' said I, lowering my arm. "'then you know its properties.' my do, I do,' he cried. "'It used to be mine. "'I confess it.' "'Then,' said I, calmly putting the horrid bit of zinc back into my belt, "'that's all I wanted to know. "'If you'll come to my office some morning next week, "'I'll introduce you to your wife.' "'And I turned from him. "'My mission accomplished, I left the festivities "'and returned to my quarters where my fair client was awaiting me. "'Well?' she said. "'It's all right, Mrs. Lohengrin,' I said, and the lady cried aloud with joy at the name, for it was the very one she had hoped it would be. "'My man turns out to be your man, and I turn him over, therefore, to you. Only deal gently with him. He's a pretty decent chap, and sings like a bird. Whereon I presented her with my bill for five thousand a bowley, which she paid without a murmur, as was entirely proper that she should.' for upon the evidence which I had secured, the fair plaintiff, in the suit for separation of Elsa versus Lohengrin, on the ground of desertion and non-support, obtained her decree, with back alimony of twenty-five per cent of Lohengrin's income, for a trifle over fifteen hundred years. How much that amounted to I really do not know, but it was a large sum, I am sure, for Lohengrin must have been very wealthy. He couldn't have afforded to dress in solid silver tinsel tights if he had been otherwise, I had the tights assayed before returning them to their owner, and even in a country where a free coinage of tights is looked upon askance, they could not be duplicated for less than eight hundred and fifty dollars, at a ratio of thirty-two to one. End of chapter 9